1: I
2: think it was a mistake, and I apologise for it. I think, in hindsight, it was the wrong thing to do. We
1: now have a quarter of the electorate just saying, spontaneously, without being prompted, the biggest problem in Britain is its, its own politicians. Changing
2: one
3: man at the top of the Tory party won't make any difference, It won't fix the problems. Let's have a fresh start for Britain. Let's have a real change of government.
4: You're listening to Bloomberg Westminster, your daily guide to British politics. I'm Ewan Potts.
5: Good afternoon. I'm Caroline Hepke.
4: And I'm Stephen Carroll. We're all here with you for this special programme today on the day that Boris Johnson says he's standing down as Britain's Prime Minister. We'll be speaking to the chair of the Commons Defence Committee, Conservative Tobias Elwood, and former Attorney General Dominic Grieve. And we'll bring you the latest live from Westminster.
6: So that's it. Boris Johnson is quitting as Prime Minister. Even by recent standards, it has been a dramatic day on Downing Street. A snowstorm of resignations from the government at the beginning of the week became an avalanche by yesterday.
5: In total, more than 50 ministers and aides leaving their posts in protest. But perhaps the final blow came at 8.43am this morning when the Chancellor, Nadeem Zahawi, only appointed to the job on Tuesday, tweeted that Boris Johnson, quote, must go now. Well, the PM has finally given in to that pressure and is now preparing his resignation speech.
4: Today's news means the UK is set to have its fourth leader in just six years. Of course, the Conservative Party still has a majority in Parliament, so it's up to the party to choose a new leader who will then take over as Prime Minister. A leadership contest will get underway in the coming days with the new PM likely to be in place by October, although that is one of the questions still yet to be decided.
6: Well, let's kick off the show today with the latest from Westminster. Bloomberg's Anna Edwards is there for us. Anna, thanks so much for joining us on Bloomberg Westminster. Now, resignation after resignation, but he held on and he held on. But in the end, even Boris Johnson felt he had to go. (laughs)
7: Yeah, absolutely. He held on. I mean, I stopped counting after 50, but we got to over 50, <laughs> didn't we, Ewan? Uh, more than 50 cabinet ministers, other ministers, ministerial aides. It's around a third of the government payroll deciding that they don't want to work with him anymore. And so we do uh, find ourselves heading towards a fourth leader in six years. How quickly we get there, though, is a question. I mean, is he going to fully quit today? We don't know exactly when he'll speak, but sometime in the next hour is the understanding. Will he fully quit? Or will he say he wants to stay on as caretaker? We already have heard from the late Labour Party that they would not be happy if the latter of those paths was chosen. He seems to have spent the last couple of hours naming uh, cabinet members, so trying to fill some of those empty positions um, as he he does get ready to step down. Uh, And you'd have to wonder what kind of speech we're going to get. What kind of Boris Johnson will we be greeted by when he does this resignation speech? Is it going to be one full of anger as a person who didn't really want to leave this job or is he going to be reflecting on achievements uh, to date such as getting brexit done as he would probably put it
5: yes absolutely we're already sort of seeing those sorts of tweets from mps it would seem looking back over the past two and a half years but then what can we expect from the leadership contest then in the coming days
7: Yeah. Well, we'll see how quickly we get into that. Will we be distracted by this whole business of whether he'll be a caretaker leader for for a little while? But when we get into the leadership contest, how many people stop step forward and how long is it going to take? So normally, the normal run of things would be that it would take us till nearly October to find a new leader for the Tory party. But we have seen it done in a sort of compressed time before. Uh, We saw after Theresa, well, when Theresa May was elected, we saw that that vote took place after David Cameron pretty quickly. Uh, But maybe with so many contenders Wanting to put their hats into the ring, maybe this will not be a speedy process, and we will have months of this all all through the summer. The process, of course, is the MPs vote first; they whittle it down to the final two. Then it goes out to the party members, and the members of the public don't get a say unless, of course, they are members of the Conservative Party. Uh, and so it'll be it'll be that process that we see unfold in front of us.
6: Anna, I, I think it's likely we're going to have a lot of candidates, aren't we? And as you say, it could this could drag on for quite some time. Who, who are some of the key names that are, that are being talked about?
7: Right. Well, I think at the top, at the top of the betting odds, back on top, because I think he'd fallen off there for a, a period, is the former Chancellor Rishi Sunak. So he's somebody to watch. I know some people have been suggesting maybe he would stand on a joint ticket, maybe with Sajid Javid. These are just people's guesses and uh, expectations at the moment, but not really, uh, no, not firm news by any stretch. So could we see Rishi Sunak? Could we see Sajid Javid? Penny Morden is someone who's talked about, she hasn't been in the cabinet for some time, but she used to have a high profile. Apparently she's very popular with the Tory grassroots. She's somebody who's, according to some, been working on a sort of covert campaign behind the scenes already. So expect something from her pretty ready to launch is the the understanding. Uh, Liz Truss is on her way back from a G20 meeting that was taking place in Bali. She was described to me yesterday as the Thatcher Tribute Act, not entirely... Uh, in flattering terms, perhaps. But uh, depending on what you think of Liz Truss, she does seem to be very popular with the the grassroots, but maybe doesn't resonate with the public at large, one one commentator has mentioned. There's just a few names. I mean, the list goes on and on. Whenever you ask anybody who's going to stand, the list is so long, and that just underscores how unknown the outcome of this is going to be. Are we going to be leaning still towards the Brexiteer right or taking us more in a one-nation Tory direction? Daji Javid was perhaps nodding towards the latter of those camps when he was talking yesterday in his resignation speech.
4: Okay, Anna Edwards, live from Westminster. Thank you for bringing us up to date. So we are now looking towards 12.30 as the time that Boris Johnson will speak as he makes his statement outside of Downing Street. Uh, Anna Edwards, of course, has the latest for you uh, from Westminster. Now, there are some within the Conservative Party who are breathing a sigh of relief that Boris Johnson has finally decided to go. One of them is the MP for North Dorset, Simon Hoare. He spoke to us earlier on Bloomberg Radio.
8: I've been a member of the Tory party for 37 years, and usually when a leader goes, or in fact always when a leader goes, one always feels a sense of uh, sadness and gratitude for the service they've done to the country and the party that they've done the things to the best of their abilities. And am fact I have none of those emotions today, and I am fundamentally relieved that this torture of presidential populism, which uh, Boris Johnson has tried to foist upon us all, is coming to an end, and thank God for that.
6: Uh, th- just to that point of the, the presidential attempts, the attempts to kind of mimic what we saw with President Trump uh, in the United States, very different political systems, uh, of course, is, is there's a case to, to be made that the, the cat is out of the bag, that the 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 fact that Boris Johnson has broken so many precedents that had held firm for so many years and decades, uh, that that causes some kind of fundamental damage to the to the body politic of the UK and to, to our system of politics. How concerned well, are you uh, about that?
8: Well, I, I, well, I, I am hugely concerned. I, 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 I try to travel optimistically and every cloud has a silver lining. I think what, what it has shown is that we are governed by convention and by respect for the conventions. That's what you expect when you have a non-written constitution. I think what the last uh, well certainly the last week has shown is the fragility of that and that it only works it can only work when all of the political parties particularly political leaders abide by those and respect the conventions so i think rather helpfully it has shown the fragility of it so i think it has put into very sharp relief the questions that certainly i will be asking Uh, potential Tory leaders, and I believe other colleagues will as well. And I think these are questions which are pertinent whether you're on the left or the right of the party or the middle of the party, how you voted in 2016 in the referendum or whatever. Are you a grown-up? Do you understand the rule of law? Do you believe in integrity, honesty, mutual respect? Do you believe in big tent politics? Do you believe in the dignity of service uh, and public service rather than self-service and self-aggrandizement? And if the answer to all of those questions, then you're a fit and proper person to lead the the Tory party. Uh, If the answer to those questions is no or I'm not certain or yes, some of them, well, I can pack your bags and go because you're not not the candidate that we are looking for. There is a huge job Hmm. which needs to be in quick order of reputational repair.
4: Okay, that was Simon Hoare, the Conservative MP for North Dorset, speaking to us on Bloomberg Radio a little bit earlier. There you go, reputational repair, what Simon Hoare thinks now will need to be done for the Conservative Party as we are waiting for that statement from Boris Johnson. We're told by our reporters on the scene that the podium is being set up outside Downing Street for a place that has seen we can say several of these sort of statements in recent years. Mm. It's not the first time in recent history at all that we can, I think we could all remember quite a few off the top of our heads. No,
5: absolutely. Uh, I mean, going back to David Cameron 2016 and then Theresa May, yes, the podium is there. And I think that Anna Edwards is right to flag up what the tone of this uh, resignation speech is actually going to be is really crucial, not just for the Conservative Party, but also for the country at this kind of cost, this moment of a cost of living squeeze and actually a war in Ukraine that that the UK has kind of been at the forefront of, in some senses, trying to support the Ukrainian government. Um And you have Boris Johnson, who wanted to go down in the history books, a man who loves history, as one of the longest-serving uh, Conservative leaders, is going to end up being actually one of the shortest, or uh, yeah, not even a matching Theresa May in terms of tenure.
6: Yes, he is. In fact, he's just coming up for three years as Prime Minister. I think uh, if he manages to cling on to late July he'll pass through that three-year mark. I think he probably will, but we're still not really certain what's going to happen over the summer. Uh, There was talk uh, immediately that he will stay until October. That's what he'd like to do. But I think that is not... Entirely certain, is it? Yeah, and we're certainly set for a long uh, leadership race. An Interesting polling by YouGov just yesterday on what uh, Conservative Party members on who they would like to see as uh, party leader. Of course, uh, they were the ones who will finally make the decision between the uh, two remaining candidates. Uh, and their top three are Ben Wallace, Penny Mordaunt and Rishi Sunak, 13 12 and 10% respectively. And then after that, uh, Liz Truss, uh, Michael Gove, and uh, Dominic Raab, but so many names uh, likely to throw their their their, their names into the hat. I think it is going to be a very interesting few
4: weeks. We we are seeing the appointment of a whole range of <coughs> ministers. Excuse me, uh, while we're waiting for Boris Johnson's statement, because of course there are a lot of empty seats to be mm. filled uh, in the government now. So most recently we've had Charlotte Vara being appointed the new Secretary of State for Northern Ireland, Kate Malthouse being appointed uh, Chancellor of the Duchy of Lancaster uh, in the Cabinet Office, uh, Robert Buckland being appointed Secretary of State. For Wales, James Cleverly, the Secretary of State yes, for Education, and
5: that's all well and good. But these are interim, yeah, they're roles, not going to be in those know.
4: jobs for very long. But it is, it is worth pointing out that these appointments are being made at a time when Downing Street is waiting, of course, for that statement to be made by the Prime yeah, Minister. Yeah,
5: absolutely, we're in a moment of great peril as it were of great turmoil in terms of politics so I want to bring in Bloomberg opinion economist Marcus Ashworth who's with me because Marcus um you've joined us in studio as we're waiting for Boris Johnson to speak and you are always very pro actually the British economy so you're going to give me the the the, the positive side I imagine actually of of the economic picture, because for many, we're thinking about whether they're going to have to be tax cuts, whether, you know, three months is a long time in politics and in economics to be without a, a leader or a, at least a proper uh, PM.
3: Sure. I'm not sure I'm, I'm pro, it's just I'm not anti, I think that's the, okay. the trouble. But <laughs> you um, yeah, um the British economy will just go sweetly on as it, as it uh, always does, because really... Uh, Politics isn't making any difference to the economics or the macro uh, background at the moment, which has got far bigger problems such as rampant inflation, potential recession, uh, obviously the energy shock price uh, stuff coming from Ukraine, um, and and, and a raft of other stuff. So, I mean, the the Bank of England is going to carry on raising interest rates. The more tax cuts that may or may not come will only encourage probably the Bank of England to hike rates. More so, you know, in essence, you look at Sterling, it hasn't really moved on politics, nor should it. It's all about the strength of the dollar. And, in fact, Sterling's done better against the euro, so clearly it isn't politics there. FTSE you know, really just does its own thing. No one can t- divine what footsie <laughs> means. And gilts are a little bit uh, higher in yield, possibly from from the increase in potential of, of supply. But actual fact, the gilt market is in a great shape as far as they want more supply. They're shorter supply. Big redemptions coming up. Lack of supply, the short, medium end. So, you know, markets-wise, everything's fine. The economy...
5: But, but hang on, isn't that a real indictment of politics then? We're spending all this time focused on politics. And if you say it makes a little difference to all of these enormous economic issues that we have,
3: Yeah, it's just the bigger forces at play. I'm afraid that, you know, little old Ireland and the global tides go on and there's nothing the Bank of England can do about sterling, uh, really, and nothing much that the government can do to, to defect things as far as, unless there is two key things which could or could not happen, a different approach to Europe and some form of rapprochement which will boost trade, which will probably see a little rise in sterling. I don't think that much. And the other thing, of course, is whether or not all of a sudden you get huge fiscal splurge. But again, as I said, that we be counteract a passive by Bank of England uh, monetary uh, um, tightening, and I think the gilt market can probably handle it. And you say that there is interestingly some fiscal
6: headroom because you listen to Rishi Sunak and it sounds like there's no there's no space at all. But actually, you say that the fiscal picture is is, is okay.
3: Stacks he could have, he could have raised fifty billion uh, about six months ago and the gilt market was ready for it, but he decided decided not to. I'm you know, not to say you should. I mean, I, you know, what Rishi Sunak is a, it's, it's a political philosophy which is you know perfectly acceptable to balance the books and do it in a manner which the Office of Budget Responsibility finds. Uh, Willing—that was a, a thing that set up by Osborne. I wonder how long that construct of the OBR will last. But uh, under a new government, nonetheless, you know there is plenty of room. We, in the context, if you want to, we mm. still have uh, about ninety-five percent uh, debt to GDP, which sounds horrific. But seventy-five before the pandemic. However, needs must.
4: Wait, do, do, how far do needs must go is the question. Like, do we? Oh,
3: <laughs> that's a question you should have asked Boris. So he to spent everything.
0: <laughs>
5: well. Hang on a second. Look back then, because this is the point we're waiting for. This speech. We're looking back over the last two and a half years. Summarise what did Boris Johnson uh, do? Pros and cons in terms of the economics of the UK, and and you know the role of Chancellor is massively important. And there are Chancellors aplenty plenty who may become the next Prime Minister. He
3: should have fired Rishi Sunak uh, probably six to seven to nine months ago and uh, avoided the fiscal tightening, which was the trilemma, which the UK economy. To your point about things that, that which, which were uniquely bad about the UK economy is we're the only major economy, probably the only economy in the world, that decided fiscal tightening was the right thing to do in the midst of a potential, you know, obviously inflation runaway scenario again at the same time uh, when interest rates need to be ra- raised and, and then obviously now the threat of recession madness. So, however, that they, they've realised their mistake. I think any new chancellor and or prime minister will be carefully but slowly unpicking some of those uh, Fiscal mistakes and indeed trying to encourage, for once, a bit of trade and a, and a bit of other. That, that national insurance rise is
6: quite modest, though, isn't it? It's not. It wasn't a huge. Well, it's a double one. If
3: you think it's it's both corporate uh, on the employer as well as employer. it's two and a half percent, a lot, I think, and certainly unneeded. Well, it's certainly interesting timing. I think you could
6: say, as you say, the only major economy uh, to do that. Talk to us about the uh, about the job market because that's really fascinating, isn't it? As we head into a slowdown, the job market is incredibly tight, uh, and it's not just the Tory party which needs uh, a a new member of staff. Lots and lots of companies are really struggling to to find people, aren't they?
3: Well, you say that, but I mean, as far as, uh, you know, yes, job vacancies are up at something like 1.7 million, which is clearly a a worrying number for lost potential growth. And and it clearly shows an economy which which has obviously been stopped and then restarted again and uh, had a huge amount of stimulus in it, which is why I'm not so pessimistic. Um, on the UK economy because there is so much stimulus in the system um, but one in five workers in the UK are, are immigrants and that is something which people have pointed out to is we have a lack of certain types of workers uh, perhaps from Europe but you know, that is a problem which, which will and has sorted itself out uh, to some degree uh, but there is a definite need for, for staff and that in some sense is a sign of a very good economy though
5: um, what do you think the response should be from the City of London? Because there, there is um, on the one hand, sort of concern that the reforms and so on may be delayed, but there's also the issue of Brexit, also um, the, the kind of conflict that the Boris Johnson government has had with the EU, and that perhaps being detrimental. What is the city view of all of this? You mentioned the B word. Uh,
3: uh, look, uh, the city doesn't want to be left alone. The, yes. After the Mifid 2 r- reforms, which caused it utter misery, that when you speak to anyone you know, of any power in the city, they'll say, whatever you do, don't change the rules of me again. I don't like the rules, but the worst thing is to change them again. Nonetheless, Solvency 2 is an important thing, and obviously with John Glenn... Uh, resigning, That mm. was a little bit of a worry. I think that will get sourced out. It's in the weeds at the moment because the Bank of England's uh, putting up all sorts of barriers to it. Um, so that's a, a wider problem. But the city, I think, has actually handled itself on its own perfectly well throughout the Brexit period. And is, and is doing, actually, what I wanted to see, which was less reliance on Europe, both for the benefit of Europe. Europe should be taking more control of its own financial affairs, which is yet to do. Uh, but equally, the UK needs to be on much wider, more global uh, source, and I think it's it's going to do fine. A little less regulation, as long as it's not self-regulation, which you know doesn't go uh, leads to very nice happy happy endings. Then I think the city is in, in a reasonably fine shape. Marcus, this is, I'm going to ask you the
6: impossible question now, really, given that we don't know who's going to be the next prime minister. But what what shape do you think? government policy is going to take, you know, fiscal policy is going to take over the next year or so. Uh,
3: I think it's going to go more to um, what people expected Boris Johnson to do, more to the right, if you want to call it a simplistic uh, measure. I think there will be some crowd-pleasing measures, both on cutting taxes. Uh, I'm interested to see, uh, one of my colleagues thinks Rishi Sunak is the best person. I think probably agree with him, but he seemed to think Rishi will be very uh, pro-Europe, if that comes. I'm not quite sure how he finds that, but that's a possibility, certainly. a Sajid Javid candidate or someone, there is a possibility for uh, something more uh, hopeful on on Europe. But as far as the overall direction of the the fiscal policy and government policy, I think doing some of the things they set out in their manifesto is going to be the key um, if they wish to at least recapture mm. some of their lost voters who have, who have fled of them in, a lot, in recent months.
5: And just really, really briefly, do you think that we're going to get a general election sooner than kind of 2024, 2025, or
3: no? No. no. I, I can't see it. I mean, obviously, I we don't know what's going to happen. And to your point earlier, that I do think that uh, Boris won't last till October in the context they will find someone to replace him <laughs> as soon as possible, uh, and rightly so. And I think... Um, That new Prime Minister will probably want to have at least two years, possibly two and a half years, to uh, see if they can make a difference. Interesting. So
6: uh, perhaps a a more conciliatory tone on uh, Europe. That would be something which markets will be uh, very interested in. Bloomberg Opinion Economist Marcus Ashworth, thanks so much for joining us on Bloomberg Westminster.
0: What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? We're
4: going to be joined now by Dominic Grieve, former Attorney-General and Conservative MP until 2019. Dominic Grieve, thank you very much for speaking to us on Bloomberg Radio. Now, you weren't a fan of Boris Johnson, but did you think this was how it was going to end for him?
9: I thought it was going to end badly. The precise way in which it's ended comes perhaps as a slight surprise, but on the other hand, the trigger, which is that the the realisation amongst his colleagues that this is a serial liar, somebody who really lies pathologically uh, and will do so repeatedly, that doesn't surprise me that it finally brought him down. Uh, the precise let's say, the story concerning Mr Pincher, the deputy chief whip, uh, and Johnson having p- appointed him in the full knowledge uh, that there were serious allegations and stories about his behavior, Um, No, that that, that, that Mm. precise trigger is rather more surprising.
5: Does it damage the Conservative Party? How much time does it take to, you know, win back voters?
9: Uh, It undoubtedly damages the Conservative Party. The Conservative Party has always prided itself on the reputation for quiet, sound government, for being a party that um, uh, behaves with propriety, uh, adheres to the Constitution uh, and its conventions and upholds its institutions. And they selected a prime minister in Johnson uh, who turned all that on its head. And indeed, they wanted him to turn it on its head to an extent so that they could achieve Brexit because they were mired in the consequences of the Leave vote and they didn't know what to do. Uh, In fact, he did that and delivered for it. But not surprisingly, he then continued in exactly the same vein, uh, showing a complete disregard for convention. Uh, sacrificing colleagues whenever he thought it necessary, and misbehaving serially. And the damage to the Conservative Party's brand, to use that expression, is very considerable.
6: Dominic, what will be the view of the people of Beaconsfield? You represented the seat in Buckinghamshire very, very well to do part of uh, southern England uh, for, for many years. And they're just the sort of voters which uh, I think the Tories were really worried uh, are leaving in droves. What, what will be their, their take on all this business?
9: I think their take on this business was, is that they've been appalled by Johnson. They were probably supportive of him when he was appointed in 2019. It's noteworthy that in a by-election last year in an adjoining seat with a very similar profile to mine, they elected a Liberal Democrat and overturned a Conservative majority in the 20,000s. Uh, and frankly, if in a by-election there uh, earlier this week, the Conservatives would have lost the seat. Uh, that's the extent to which people are really angry at Johnson's behaviour. Yeah. Uh, and um, uh, uh, But that having been said... Is it irremediable? No, it can be remedied. And if the Conservative Party gets a a good leader, somebody who is sound and and adheres to what I would call sensible Conservative principles, Mm -hmm. despite the crisis we have over cost of living and many other challenges, I think it's possible that people will start taking an interest again. But we certainly need to put Johnson far behind us.
5: Okay, Dominic Grieve, the former Attorney General. Um, do stay with us just a moment because we are watching uh, number 10 Downing Street. There is a podium now set up with sound. We are anticipating the Prime Minister, Boris Johnson, uh, to uh, speak to the cameras um, with this resignation speech. Uh, so we await that and we'll bring it to you as soon as it happens. But in the meanwhile, we have Tobias Elwood, MP for Bournemouth East, also with us, and a UK government minister. Um, at the MOD between 2017 and 2019. Tobias, thank you so much for being with us um, back again on, on Bluebeck Radio. Um, what do you make then of this two and a half years? Uh, it, it was a huge amount of pressure on, on the Prime Minister. He finally caved, but he did not want to. Uh, of course, Tobias, you're also chair of the Commons Defence Committee too. Yes, uh,
1: it's uh, been a quite incredible journey and very painful for the last number of months. I mean, I'm just looking at my emails that I sent uh, to Graham Brady back in February, saying I didn't have the confidence in the prime minister anymore. Um, And it was quite lonely to put my hand up there and say, uh, this isn't going the right way. We've lost the trust with the British people, and we're not focusing on the the right things, what the country needs, and and internationally as well. So I'm pleased that finally we've got to this point, um, but it's been very painful indeed. It's not only damaged the party brand, uh, what's happened over the last few days, uh, it's also internationally, I think, eroded, uh, the uh, good stock that we've gained with our efforts to support Ukraine. So there's a lot of rebuilding for the party now to go through. We've got to get through this leadership contest and then get back to re-engaging with the British public, offer a vision um, that uh, we can, uh, I think, appeals to t- to the nation, all of the nation, uh, with a view to trying to secure an election win. But it will be tough. There's no doubt about it.
4: Is going to the country an answer to that? Is it a question of to to get confidence in a new leader that you should call an election?
1: Oh, absolutely. I mean, look at where we are in the polls, look what happened in the local elections, look what happened in those by-elections as well. On this trajectory, there's simply no way that we'd have any chance of winning the general election uh, with Boris Johnson in charge. And his style of government, uh, his sort of lacklustre approach to uh, the discipline and focus in number 10 was a reflection of that we didn't really get the big reshuffle. They, you know, there wasn't a real change of direction after you know ever since the Owen Paterson uh, debacle began, and it's led to where we are today. And it's I'm afraid, some one of those things that happens in parties. Occasionally, it happens in government. We need to make sure that this transition is uh, credible um, and uh, is is done professionally. Bearing in mind any civil war that now breaks out. Uh, would be unfortunate. We have to reunite on the flip side of this and then focus, as I say, on uh, providing the answers, the solutions. Everything that was going on with Boris Johnson was a distraction. He really wasn't able to land any big policy statements because of the day-to-day firefighting.
6: Tobias, you've been very clear about, about your, your your feelings about Boris Johnson, but, but it, he was a special kind of politician, wasn't he? Do, do you think your party will ever have a leader who can reach non-Tory voters in the way that Johnson did?
1: Uh, yes, I do absolutely. I think you're right. there's something um magical about his campaigning techniques, but there was a big dearth in 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 his ability to govern uh, when he was in uh, the mayor's office in London, uh, he very much was the front of house person, he was that ambassador, but he had a fantastic team around him that did the work, and that was absent. Uh, I think a cabinet wasn't functioning properly, and uh, we didn't take advantage of that huge majority. That you actually can credit Boris Johnson from securing, so it, it is different from just being uh, on the campaign trail and uh, making people feel special, maybe, you know, warming the hearts to actually running the country during very, very difficult and challenging times.
5: Okay, so a good campaigner, but not a good governor, is, is your point, I suppose. In some senses, given that uh, you know he had such a history. Um, and, and was known as as being somebody, even in in his private prior life, uh, pre becoming prime prime minister, someone who had a very loose relationship with the truth. It, is that c- can some of the blame be laid at the door of MPs for for lasting so long, two and a half years, in supporting this when when there were problems in some senses right from the beginning of his tenure?
7: Well,
1: he did have this this, this ability to. Um, uh... Lock in support on uh, parliamentary support as well. Like I said, it, it's, uh, I recognized this early on that this wasn't going the right direction. Um, and slowly but surely, more and more people felt the same uh, way. And I'm afraid it was just more and more evidence. And then the Chris Pincher stuff was just another example of that. Sending ministers out to speak on your programs and others, uh, on, we're given lines from number 10, which wouldn't last more than four or five hours because we weren't able to, to get to the truth or, or tell the truth. And that just diminishes, as I say, trust. And then people start looking at their own election situations, what the numbers are in their own patch, realising that actually they could lose their seat unless we do change direction, because the, the breach of trust with the British people was just too large.
4: Tobias, I'm wondering who do you think is best placed in the Conservative Party to lead and unite it now? Would you consider the job yourself?
1: Uh, well, it's very kind of you to, to suggest that. Uh, it's, it, uh, it's quite an honour that people are suggesting that, but uh, this is a Brexiteer market at the moment, to talk your language, uh, not a one-nation market. My, my party, I don't think, is in the right place to allow somebody like myself to, uh, to, to flourish. It's, um, there's also a big queue, others measuring the curtains there already. Uh, I'm a one-nation conservative. I'm the equivalent of a Theodore Roosevelt, I suppose. Uh, but it's, uh, it's brexiteer focus, And uh, I tried to make that point in the last few weeks to provoke my party to recognise that we haven't come to a proper accommodation on Brexit within our party or indeed in the nation. Until that's done, it will be somebody, sadly, who voted Brexit in 2016 that will... Uh, I think, dominate the limelight um, within our party membership that very much is, is of that uh, um, of that calling. So it, it's, it's difficult right now. I don't think it's the time for me right now.
6: So uh, Brexit here, but perhaps not you. Uh, it's Tobias Elwood uh, joining us on Bloomberg Westminster. Uh, just gone 12.30. We're just waiting <laughs> for Boris Johnson to uh, speak to us. Uh, Tobias, do you think perhaps... Uh, Uh, It should be uh, somebody from the military. So if not you, then perhaps somebody like uh, Ben Wallace.
1: Yeah, Ben is very much... I mean, there's a number of people that I could absolutely live with and I think could do a good job in allowing the cabinet construct to work. These are big departments. Departments should be allowed to operate with competent people, not sycophants, who just support the Prime Minister, which is where we ended up. Certainly Ben Wallace, is, I think, is a major contender. Um, You've got... uh, Nadim Zahawi as well, you've got Jeremy Hunt. You know, when I step forward... Tobias, Tobias, I'm so sorry.
5: I'm going to interrupt you because we want to go to the Prime Minister now live.
2: OK. Thank you, thank you. It is clearly now the will of the Parliamentary Conservative Party that there should be a new leader of that party and therefore a new Prime Minister. And I've agreed with Sir Graham Brady, the chairman of our backbench MPs, that the process of choosing that new leader should begin now. And the timetable will be announced next week. And I've today appointed a cabinet to serve, as I will, until a new leader is in place. So I want to say to the millions of people who voted for us in 2019, many of them voting Conservative for the first time, thank you for that incredible mandate. The biggest Conservative majority since 1987 the biggest share of the vote since 1979. And the reason I have fought so hard in the last few days to continue to deliver that mandate in person was not just because I wanted to do so, but because I felt it was my job, my duty, my obligation to you to continue to do what we promised in 2019. And of course, I'm immensely proud of the achievements of this government from getting Brexit done to settling our relations uh, with the continent for over half a century, uh, reclaiming the power for this country to make its own laws in Parliament, getting us all through the pandemic, delivering the fastest vaccine rollout in Europe, the fastest exit from lockdown, and in the last few months, leading the West in standing up to Putin's aggression in Ukraine. And let me say now, to the people of Ukraine, that I know that we in the UK will continue to back your fight for freedom for as long as it takes. And at the same time, in this country, we've been pushing forward a vast program of investment in infrastructure and skills and technology, the biggest in a century. Because if I have one insight into human beings, it is that genius and talent and enthusiasm and imagination are evenly distributed Throughout the population but opportunity is not and that's why we must keep leveling up keep unleashing the potential of every part of the United Kingdom and if we can do that in this country we will be the most prosperous in Europe and in the last few days I've tried to persuade my colleagues that it would be eccentric to change governments when we're delivering so much and when we have such a vast mandate and when we're actually only a handful of points behind in the polls, even in mid-term after quite a few months of pretty relentless sledging and when the economic scene is so difficult domestically and internationally. And I regret uh, not to have been successful in those arguments. And of course, it's painful not to be able to see through so many ideas and and projects myself. But as we've seen uh, at Westminster, uh, the herd instinct is powerful when the herd moves, it moves. And my friends, in politics, no one is remotely indispensable. And our brilliant and Darwinian system will produce another leader equally committed to taking this country forward through tough times, not just helping families to get through it, but changing and improving the way we do things, cutting burdens on businesses and families, and yes, cutting taxes, because that is the way to generate the growth and the income. We need to pay for great public services. And to that new leader, I say, whoever he or she may be, I say I will give you as much support as I can. And to you, the British public, I know that there will be many people who are relieved and uh, perhaps quite a few who will also be disappointed. And I want you to know how sad I am to be giving up the best job in the world. But them's the breaks. I want to thank Carrie and our children, all members of my family who have had to put up with so much for so long. I want to thank the peerless British Civil Service for all the help and support that you have given our police, our emergency services and of course our fantastic NHS who at critical moment helped to extend my own period in office as well as our armed services and our agencies that are so admired around the world, and our indefatigable Conservative Party members and supporters whose selfless campaigning makes our democracy possible. I want to thank the wonderful staff here at Chequers, uh, here at Number 10, and of course at Checkers, and our fantastic Prop Force detectives, the one group, by the way, uh, who never leak. Above all... I want to thank you, the British public, for the immense privilege that you have given me. And I want you to know that from now on until the new Prime Minister is in place, your interests will be served and the government of the country will be carried on. Being Prime Minister is an education in itself. I've travelled to every part of the United Kingdom, and in addition to the beauty of our natural world, I found so many people possessed of such boundless British originality and so willing to tackle old problems in new ways that I know that even if things can sometimes seem dark now, our future together is golden. Thank you all very much.
5: Okay. So that was Boris Johnson, the Prime Minister from the 24th of July 2019 to this day and actually a remarkably upbeat speech in some ways saying that although things seem dark now, the future together is golden. He thanked many people. He talked about, uh, you know, the boundless British originality of all the people that he had met all the places that he had been to saying that government would continue. Ewan and and Stephen, listening to that speech, I wonder what you made of it.
6: Yeah, speaking about, about... Six minutes. I don't think it was quite Boris on sort of full bombastic form, was it? But then the guy has just lost his, his dream job, hasn't he? Uh, which is
5: what he called it. He called it the best job in the world.
6: Yeah, it's the job, which, of course, we I remember we speculated for so long about how he would get the job, when he would get the job, if he would get the job. And then finally, in those dramatic days three years ago, he did get the job, but it wasn't to last as, as long as he hoped. Uh, interesting that he um, blamed the herd instinct, he mm. said, for... Uh, for seeing him removed from Downing Street. He said he felt that it was my job, my duty, my obligation to stay on and that he regrets not being able to persuade his colleagues. You can just imagine him over the last uh, few days saying, please, please stay. And as he said in his speech, you know, the polls aren't that bad. Just give me a little bit longer. But in the end, of course, his colleagues just didn't want to give him any longer.
4: Yeah, and I mean, it was interesting to hear that those couple of digs that were in that speech, there was the herd instinct, one saying that it was very powerful to those uh, that had had chosen to oust him. He said he would give the new leader, quote, as much support as I can, not unequivocal or, or, you know, not with any sort of, uh, 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 effort of, of it perhaps being something that um, he was doing very willingly just simply what he, he had to do and of course there was that remark as well about the only force that doesn't leak, the police force that that support the <laughs> Prime Minister so I think th- there were some quite typical Boris Johnson I suppose humour remarks however you want humour to Humour and it. Co-
5: complaints perhaps uh, but importantly Johnson uh, wants to stay on as caretaker prime minister until the new leader is in place. That still, though, perhaps is a point that is up for debate amongst uh, certainly his his fellow colleagues. The timetable uh, for the leadership trans- transition, therefore, is due to be set out next week. So, in a sense, Boris Johnson actually isn't going anywhere yet, and even that is rather unusual for a British prime minister. It's rare, uh, you know, once the faith uh, of MPs has, you know, has gone, has been dissipated that that Prime Ministers actually stay.
6: Yeah, it's normally quite a brutal process isn't it? Yes. As soon as we know they're going, the vans literally arrive at Downing Street and start taking away the uh, outgoing PM's stuff. I think Americans in particular are often a little bit surprised by that, of course, because in the US there's quite a long period of transition mm. with the lame duck president staying in in the White House. But uh, no, here uh, they just go they go straight away. Uh, so that is probably mm. not going to be the case. But interestingly, there's already also already some uh, rumblings of discontent uh, from uh, conservatives that, that the PM may be staying around uh, for quite some time. Uh, interestingly, on his uh, legacy he talked about getting Brexit done, which you probably Expect. He also talked about his uh, work in the pandemic, clearly something he's he's proud of, and on uh, the vaccination. And a uh, 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 particularly important bit about Ukraine, very mm. much stating that the UK will carry on uh, backing uh, the Ukrainian people in their fight uh, against Russia.
4: Yeah, and talked too then of the on the economic front, the infrastructure, investment and in infrastructure, skills and technology, and the levelling up policy that he you know is very determined that that should continue. Uh, and he said that it was painful that he wouldn't be able to complete. Those projects which were clearly dear to him in those as well. So that was the British Prime Minister Boris mm-hmm. Johnson speaking, announcing his own yeah. the end of his own nearly three years in office.
5: Yeah, absolutely. Um I mean I think if you Think back over the last two and a half years, I mean, it is worth bearing in mind. And Boris Johnson had two terms in office as mayor of London, and he had previously been, of course, a journalist. He campaigned for Brexit. He endorsed the Vote Leave campaign in 2016. He was foreign secretary under Theresa May, then went to the backbenchers before Theresa May's resignation, the leadership contest that Boris Johnson then won, and obviously not without a whole slew, actually, of controversies when we look back on it. Think of the controversy and the resignation of his chief political advisor, Dominic Cummings. That was sort of the first signal of uh, issues for for Boris Johnson. Um, He then also had Partygate, the lockdown parties, which the Prime Minister was fined, Uh, even the Downing Street refurbishment controversy, as well as a number of uh, allegations of sexual misconduct against Conservative MPs and how those allegations were then handled by the Prime Minister. Also, the route of of more controversy so it's been quite a sort of checkered two and a half years and yet also as i think marcus ashworth was explaining it to us so well a britain and ireland rather buffeted by political change and and events abroad too
6: bloomberg westminster listen weekdays at noon on dab digital radio in london